Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. Welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast. This week, we're going to have a look at the vexed issue of productivity. Outgoing Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has highlighted Australia's weak productivity growth and noted that boosting it should be the key issue that dominates economic discussion. So why is boosting productivity so important? And why is it seen as so hard to do? We did have a look at this issue about a year ago, but it's worth having another look at given its importance to our economy and investment markets. Before we do that though, it's worth considering a couple of quotes. The first one is from Paul Krugman, who's a US economist, who noted that productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it is almost everything. There's another quote though from a German philosopher, George Hegel, who noted that the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And in particular here, I'm thinking that we often forget what drives productivity, even though through history, we've learned that and relearned that on several occasions. So firstly, what is productivity? Productivity refers to the level of economic output for a given level of labor and capital inputs. Increased productivity means more is being produced for a given level of inputs. Output is usually referred here as being a gross domestic product or GDP and dividing inputs of labor or hours worked and capital, such as structures and machinery, into GDP gives what is called multi-factor productivity. However, it's more common to refer to measures of labour productivity, in other words, GDP per hour worked. If you look at the history of that, say over the last 40 years, you can see a period of very, very strong growth in productivity or output per Australian worked from about 1991 up until 2004. In fact, over that period, productivity growth was about 2.2% per annum. But over the next 14 years, from about 2004 to 2017 into 2018, productivity growth more than halved to just 1%. And over the period since 2019, it's virtually stalled. So why does productivity matter? Productivity matters because, as Paul Krugman points out, a country's ability to improve its standard of living over time depends almost entirely on its ability to raise its output per worker. And you can see over history that the longer term pattern in labour productivity growth has correlated very closely with growth in GDP per capita or GDP per person. Roughly speaking, the slowdown in productivity growth from 2.2% per annum in the 1990s into the early 2000s to just 0.8% on average over the last decade means that over after a 10-year period, annual GDP will be 13% less than what otherwise have been the case. So if you translate that into today's dollars, that's about $350 billion less, which means lower material living standards than otherwise would have been the case. Of course, we can make up for this by faster population growth, as has been the case since the mid-2000s, but this does not address the negative impact on living standards per person. Likewise, in Australia, the slump in productivity has been masked over the last couple of decades by strong commodity prices and hence national income has been helped along the way all of which partly depends on the China boom. But medium-term threats to China's growth mean that we cannot rely on this indefinitely. Over time, lower productivity growth means lower real wages growth, slower growth in profits, and a reduced ability for the government to provide services that the community expects. It's also important in terms of sustaining decent wages growth. For example, if wages growth is 4% and output per worker goes up by 1.5% in a given year, then the increase in labour cost for business is 2.5%. And if they pass that on as higher prices, it's in line with the Reserve Bank's 2-3% inflation objective. But if wages go up 4%, 
and productivity growth is zero, business costs go up 4%. And if they pass that on to their customers, it likely results in inflation above the Reserve Bank's target. Hence, 4% wages growth is consistent with the inflation target, but only if productivity growth picks up to its long-term average of 1.5%. So why the slump in productivity growth? First, a bit of history. After the malaise of the high inflation, high unemployment 1970s, there was a focus in the 1980s on supply-side economic reforms designed to improve productivity growth by making the economy more flexible and competitive, improving incentives and improving skills. This included financial deregulation, floating the Australian dollar, labour market deregulation, product market deregulation, reduced trade barriers, competition reforms, privatisation, tax reform and an improvement in educational attainment. Along with baby boomers reaching their peak productivity years, it saw productivity growth surge through the 1990s into the 2000s. But since then, a range of factors have contributed to slower productivity growth. Firstly, there has been little in the way of new economic reforms designed to boost productivity since the GST. And in fact, in some areas, there's been a backsliding. For example, the labour market has become arguably less flexible and more regulated. We've seen very strong population growth, but with an inadequate infrastructure and housing supply response, and that's led to urban congestion, poor housing affordability, all of which contributes to poor productivity growth, notably via increased transport costs and increased speculative activity around housing, diverting resources from more productive uses. You could also argue that lumbering people with lots of debt is not the best way to boost productivity. The retirement of the baby boomer wave and replacement with the wave of less experienced millennials and Gen Z may also drive slower productivity growth, just as the baby boomers did when they entered the workforce in the 1970s. On top of that, we've seen growth in real business investment stalling in the, in the last decade or so. We've seen increased market concentration, which has reduced competition. We've also seen confusion regarding climate policies and that's contributed to underinvestment in power supply and high energy costs and we have rejected an efficient market-based mechanism such as carbon pricing and trading to determine the best way to eliminate carbon emissions in favour of a hodgepodge of measures according to former Productivity Commissioner Chair Gary Banks. What's more, the services sector has grown as a share of the economy, as is almost inevitable, and it is more labour-intensive and has less productive. And related to that, the pandemic um, has distorted things to some degree by first boosting productivity as low productivity services activity was curtailed in the early stages of the pandemic by lockdowns and then reducing productivity as services activity is rebounded with reopening. Now, of course, that last effect is arguably temporary, which should pass as the reopening boost in services demand eventually subsides. So the recent slump in productivity is likely to be reversed to some degree, enabling us to get back to pre-pandemic trends in terms of productivity growth. The problem, of course, is that even that was relatively slow and all of the other factors uh, that I've just gone through are likely more structural and longer lasting. So how do we boost productivity? Unfortunately, there are no quick fixes. The key is to acknowledge the problem, discuss the options and chart a path forward. Fortunately, as Governor Lowe has regularly pointed out, there are plenty of good ideas. At a high level, key areas for action include the following, improving labour market flexibility, measures to boost workforce capability, maintaining higher levels of infrastructure to reduce congestion, lower transport costs, and allow more people to live in less expensive parts of the country. Boost the supply of housing to more than match the underlying population-driven demand for several years until the housing shortfall is removed. Competition reforms to reduce market concentration, better healthcare focusing on prevention and management, more incentives to boost investment and adopt new technology, particularly artificial intelligence in the services sector, improving public sector productivity, reducing climate policy uncertainty and relying more on market signals 
as to how best to transition to net zero, simplifying regulations and removing redundant regulations, limiting the size of government and tax reform to rebalance away from the more distortionary taxes such as company profits tax and personal income tax to a broader GST, but of course compensating those adversely affected along the way, and also removing nuisance taxes like stamp duty. The Productivity Commission undertakes a five-year review of productivity in Australia and has recently updated its detailed list of recommendations on this front. Now, the use of artificial intelligence in services will arguably help, but that will take time and we get to see much boost in measured productivity from the internet. So one shouldn't be overly reliant on artificial intelligence as saving us on this front. So what's stopping us from implementing policies which should help boost productivity? The main constraint to boosting productivity is arguably political. The government is focused on improving skills, fixing energy supply and encouraging the adoption of new technology. However, support for the economic rationalist policies of the 1980s that gave rise to the supply-side reforms of the Thatcher, Reagan, Hawke and Keating era of smaller government, fundamental tax cuts, deregulation and privatisation has long faded. In the 1980s, the political pendulum swung to centre-right policies in reaction to the failure of big government policies in the 1970s. Now, of course, the political pendulum has swung back to the left and away from free market solutions. This, of course, reflects a combination of factors, including the feeling that the GFC showed deregulation went too far. In other words, this swing by the median voter back to the left has been going on for some time now. We've seen stagnant and recently falling real wages, so that hasn't been helping either. High household debt levels have prevented individuals from taking on more debt as a way to boost living standards. We've seen concerns that rising levels of inequality are unfair. We've seen the perceived failure of the baby boomer generation to do much about climate change and housing affordability. We've seen examples of big business doing the wrong thing. There's been a backlash against immigration in some countries. There's also been a backlash against global globalisation. And at the same time, we're seeing increasing geopolitical tensions between countries. Finally, of course, we've gone through the GFC and more recently the pandemic. And there's a feeling that government was able to protect us, particularly through the pandemic. And as a result, that's led to the feeling that they should be able to fix other problems too. All of this, to some degree, is resulting in much bigger government. And in fact, you can see that in the most recent federal government budget in Australia, that the projected share of spending, government spending that is, and government revenue collection as a share of the economy is well above what it was in the pre-pandemic years, and that's for the next decade. It's not just for a short period. Of course, it's being aided, all of this shift is being aided by dimmering memories of the stagflation of the 1970s and its causes. So government-related solutions, often tied to addressing national security and climate issues, seem more attractive than free market solutions. This is resulting in more government intervention in economies, notably across advanced countries in subsidies to develop electric car or battery industries. And in many ways, this is reminiscent of what we saw in the post-war protectionist era, which ultimately led to the, or contributed to at least, the malaise of the 1970s. So in conclusion, and what does all this mean for investors? Australia is in far better shape than many comparable countries. Public debt is relatively low, unemployment is low, and we are less politically polarised and more open to compromise. However, after nearly two decades of policy drift, declining productivity growth is weighing on growth in living standards and sustainable real wages growth. Some boost in productivity is likely as pandemic-related distortions drop out, and some government measures will no doubt help. However, the political will for the sort of economic reforms necessary, particularly around taxation, labour markets and climate change for another 1990s-style rebound in productivity growth looks very unlikely. This in turn is making the Reserve Bank's job in getting inflation down just a little bit harder and it will also constrain medium-term investment returns if we don't get productivity growth back up again. So I hope that's been of value. Until we meet again, 
Adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver in the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform.